This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we expounded this text uh, two weeks ago, and then last week we, in a sense, started to look at the application of this text under, under the theme of preaching Christ. You'll see why when I read the text to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so... Last week, we, um, we started to dig in a little deeper into this theme of what it means to preach Christ. And so again, I give a shameless plug for the Spurgeon Seminar coming up this Saturday. And it's going to cover a lot of the things that we've been talking about the last two weeks. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, so as we looked last week, we started with the center of Paul's preaching. And so, I'm going to just see how well you listened. What is the center of Paul's preaching? Christ, the cross. What else does Paul say that he preached? Okay, Christ crucified. Yeah, we got that part, so... But what else did he say that he preached? Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, all right? And so one of the things that that we have to reckon with is how does Paul harmonize in his ministry the idea that preaching Christ was central to his preaching, and yet he preached the whole counsel of God. And I would say that the, in a sense, sort of the, the easy way to harmonize that is to simply say that Paul was committed to preaching the Christ-centered scriptures, right? So for Paul, preaching Christ and preaching the whole counsel of God were not two different things. It's one and the same, all right? Uh, and then we asked, well, what is the center of the Bible, all right? So what's the central message of the Bible? What's at the center of Scripture? Okay. It's not bad, Strachan. God saves sinners, but it's not exactly what we're looking for. What's that? It's Christ, right? Where in the world would we get the idea that Christ is actually the very center of the Bible? Well, how about from Jesus himself, okay? And I'm I'm willing to 
bet that's a good place to go and be convinced of that truth. So remember Jesus actually in um, his encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, we have a number of very critical statements in that passage where Jesus opens the scriptures to them, right? Now, of course, they don't, they don't recognize him at first. He opens the scriptures to them and, and here's the key phrase, and beginning with Moses and all of the Psalms and all of the prophets, he told them how the Christ, showed them how the Christ was to suffer, then enter into his glory. And in fact, in Luke 24, we have a number of statements by Jesus himself that indicate that Christ is indeed the center and the goal of all scripture. Uh, Jesus says this in other places. Um, In John chapter 5, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But it is these scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, which testify concerning me. If you would have believed Moses, you would believe me. For Moses spoke concerning me. And so Jesus Christ is the center of the Bible, all right? So from Genesis to Revelation, ultimately it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, if Christ was the center of Paul's preaching and Christ is in fact the center of the biblical message We are obviously called then to preach Christ from the Bible and to preach Christ from the whole Bible. And so then we asked, what exactly does that mean? And before we answered that, we talked about what it did not mean, what it does not mean to preach Christ. And uh, I gave you a little history of why this became such an important issue, um, especially back in the 1900s all those many, many, many years ago. And um, there, of course, was a, um, a debate that happened in the Dutch churches in the Netherlands. And you had a long history of what was called exemplary preaching or moralism, moralistic preaching. And the moralistic preaching basically would take Bible characters and draw moral lessons from those Bible characters. And there became a reaction to that because you obviously can do that for months on end and never mention the name of Jesus. And the reaction, and I would suggest overreaction, was a kind of preaching that that sought to preach Christ exclusively from wherever passage you might be. And so that, um, that was sort of a, a, an important debate. That debate did end up impacting, uh, especially reformed churches in the United States, and it's something that continues to this day. Um, we talked about um, preaching Christ doesn't mean preaching a truncated gospel so that every, the theme of every sermon is, Jesus died for your sins, come to faith in Jesus, right? We said that preaching Christ doesn't mean necessarily, no matter where you are, making a beeline to the cross. There's there is um, there's an artificial way to preach Christ, 
and uh, typically reverts to uh, allegory or something like that so that um, uh, you make uh, connections that aren't there, right? Uh, And then we mentioned um, heavy on the indicatives and light on the imperatives and which that's not what preaching Christ is either, just constantly telling everybody what God has done for you in Christ and then, of course, never telling anybody what they're supposed to do in response, lest, in fact, it eclipse what God has done, all right? And that kind of preaching typically is very light on application, and it's light on application because that's, of course, not the point of the Bible, they would say. The point of the Bible is to reveal Christ, false dichotomy, I think. So then we move to preaching Christ from the whole Bible. And if we're going to preach Christ from the whole Bible, what should be our primary fundamental commitment? At preaching the whole Bible, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, you, you can't really say, um, I'm going to preach Christ from the whole Bible, but I'm going to do it exclusively from Paul's epistles. Okay, you, We have to be committed to preaching uh, the, the whole Christ from the whole Scripture. And, of course, I argue that the best way to preach the whole Bible is how? Consecutive exposition, right? Book by book, passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, word by word, preposition by preposition, right? Now, you know that I won't live long enough to actually preach the entire Bible, right? Right? Um, unless I start moving a lot faster, I'll die long before you ever hear me preach through Second Chronicles. But I'm committed to do it. If God, get, if God lets me live to be about 180, I'll get to some of those books. So preaching Christ from the whole Bible means, first of all, we need to be preaching the whole Bible, but we also need to be interpreting the Bible with a Christ-centered perspective. And so what does that mean? Well, it means we pay attention to redemptive history. Remember, the Bible is the Bible is the revelation of God's redemptive acts through history that ultimately point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's redemptive history. And so what the Bible is, is the Bible is, the Bible is not a systematic theology. Okay? The Bible is not like an ancient form of Wayne Grudem's systematics. All right? The Bible is history. And the Bible is the revelation of God working in history. And by the way, the Bible's not ultimately about Israel. It's not ultimately about the land. The Bible is ultimately about God's great redemptive work through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we we pay attention to those lines. We pay attention to the storyline of the Bible. We pay attention to the big themes of the Bible. We pay attention to uh, the uh, promise and fulfillment structure of the Bible. Uh, We also, when we preach the whole counsel of God in a Christ-centered way, we ask redemptive questions of the text, for instance. And so, what does this text reveal about God's nature and what is about God's nature that either requires redemption or provides redemption? What does the text reveal about human nature? What does the text reveal about um, my fallen condition, which requires redemption? Uh, We look at texts redemptively, not legalistically. 
And so we made a number of uh, examples out of that using some adjacent sermons from the Sermon on the Mount. And so the message of love your enemies is not just uh, buck up and love your enemies because that's the right thing to do. It's actually you're to love your enemies because God loved you, right? And, and so we don't preach uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church in a way that just says uh, try harder, bring her fat flowers and make a date night. We actually preach that there, is a, there, there are grounds, there's a motivation to love your wife. There's power to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and that is in Christ's redemptive love for us. And so we never preach these things as if they're just a, a, a to-do list, right? It, to-do lists are killers. To-do lists may make you feel wonderfully guilty, for you sermonic sadists out there, that I just the, the best thing about a sermon is leaving feeling as if I've been dragged behind a truck. Okay, that's not necessarily the uh, the response that we want you to have. Conviction is good, but conviction that doesn't lead you to the grace and love and power of the Lord Jesus is wasted conviction. Uh, we look at the trajectories of sin and grace and so forth um, because Jesus is not going to be explicit in every text, is he? But there will be trajectories regarding sin and grace and so forth. And so next, we should preach the word so that we point to Christ. And then I had a quote from Brian Chapel there. And uh, really, uh, to, to summarize that, you, you, you preach in a way that you're pointing people to Christ so that um, they might conclude from the sermon, and probably should, I'm a terrible sinner, but their, but their better conclusion is, and Christ is a great Savior, right? And so, hallelujah, what a Savior. That should actually be um, our, our ultimate aim. Next, we should preach both the indicatives and the imperatives. What, what are the indicatives? Grammar quiz. But I just gave it last week, so you should do just fine. Indicatives. Those are the things that have been done. Yeah. Indicative. Statement of fact. Those are the things that, are, that have been done. Imperatives. Those are the things we must do. That's right. And... Um, there is done and do, the indicative imperative, and they're, of course, related to each other, right? Uh, and, and they are related to each other in a way that if, by the way, if, if we preach the imperatives, okay, do, the things you must do, without preaching the indicatives or rooting them in the indicatives, then we actually are stuck with a form of legalism and moralism, which is just, you know, do this, right? So we preach the indicatives um, and the imperatives, and if we preach only the indicatives without the imperatives, we can be guilty of antinomianism. If we preach the imperatives without the indicatives, we can be guilty of Phariseeism or legalism. And so the indicatives, the great indicatives of the gospel, what God has done for us, provide motivation 
and empowerment to do what he's called us to do. Okay? And by the way, this, I, I, would, I would actually argue that this is the pattern of New Testament ethics, is indicative and imperative. Okay? And you could take a look at the book of Ephesians itself and chapters 1 through 3, nothing but what? Indicatives. This is what God has done for us. Four through six, imperatives. Therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, because this is what God has done for us, accomplished for us, this is now how you are supposed to live. And by the way, we don't separate these things. These things are are kept together. Uh, So you, you, by the way, have this constant pattern all over the place. You could pick virtually any passage in Paul and see the indicative imperative pattern. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, therefores are typically going to lead you to an imperative. Therefore, glorify God in your body, right? Sunday morning, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's 11 chapters worth of indicatives that Paul just calls the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice, all right? So, um, that brings us now to what I consider to be the perfectly balanced perspective on all of this. We should not, I probably should put a however in there. We should not, however, be afraid to preach the Bible as the Bible preaches itself. In other words, there is a danger in not reading the Bible in a a, a way that's consistent. There's a danger in not reading the Bible in all of the ways that the Bible interprets itself. So here's here's what I'm getting at for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about. People start to grab on to Christ-centered preaching. They start to lay hold of the, the evils of moralism and legalism, and then they hear a sermon um, like I'm going to do when we get to Genesis 18 on, on Abraham leading his family, commanding them in the ways of the Lord, and I'm going to talk about how fathers should actually lead their families, right? And so, if you're all sensitized to preaching Christ, and then you hear a sermon on how you should be leading your families, you might start to think, oh my goodness, what is he doing? He's reverted back to moralism, all for the sake of of his fundamentalist roots, and he wants to preach the law to us without any gospel. Now, I would say a number of things we have to keep in mind. First of all, the charges of moralism and legalism are oftentimes exaggerated. Just because you preach a sermon that doesn't have the name of Jesus in it 24 times doesn't mean that you've preached a moralistic sermon, right? Uh, And I'm going to give you a number of of reasons why. 
Um, but as we, as we think about the Bible and we think about the way the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, here's, here's my simple question. If you are interpreting the Old Testament the way the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, can you ever be guilty of not preaching Christ? Does that, sentence, does that question make sense to you? In other words, if I'm treating the Old Testament like the New Testament treats the Old Testament, can I ever be charged with moralism? No. Can I ever be charged with legalism? No. Why? Well, unless you're willing to charge the New Testament writers with legalism or moralism, then you you, you can't make that jump. And so what I want to show you is uh, the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament and sometimes exemplary preaching, preaching examples, is in fact incredibly biblical. All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now let me just stop there. You understand this is incredibly Christ-centered perspective on the Old Testament, right? (laughs) The minute that you say, and the rock was Christ, what's Paul doing? He's interpreting the Old Testament from a deeply Christ-centered perspective, all right? If, If you were reading in the book of Exodus, would you ever conclude that rock was Christ unless Paul had told you that rock was Christ? Let me just answer for you. No, you would not, okay? You would not. Now, Paul says... The rock was Christ. Then he says, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as what? As examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for Our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, why do I read that passage? Because that passage does something for us, and that is, shows us how the apostle understood the Old Testament. 
Did he see Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Absolutely. I mean, the 10, chapter 10, verse 4, actually 1 through 4, is very Christ-centered. But did he also look at the behavior of the Israelites as a moral example designed to instruct us as Christians? He says it twice, verse 6 and verse 11. And in fact, he even says something that that is somewhat shocking to us, and that is these things happened as an example for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. In other words, that which is recorded for us in the Old Testament not only is designed to point us to Christ, but is also designed as an example for us so that we don't follow their bad example, so that we're not idolaters, so that we're not grumblers, etc. And so, I would argue that that, um, preaching example, so... um, is it, is it okay to preach a sermon that says, look at what Lot did. Look at the way Lot made his choice. Christian, don't be like Lot. Is that legitimate? I, I say, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you don't, you don't teach that apart from the gospel and apart from the uh, uh, empowerment and motivation of what God has done for us, but indeed, it is absolutely legitimate. Think, for instance, of, you want to talk about exemplary preaching, think of Hebrews chapter 11. What does the writer to the Hebrews do in Hebrews chapter 11? He starts with <laughs> Okay, true. Um, he starts with who? With Abel. Okay, with Abel. All right? And Abel is a model of what? Somebody who trusted God, right? Now, you go through the in- What do we call this chapter typically? The faith chapter, the hall of fame of faith, or something like that. And you have all of these heroes of the faith. Now, to be sure, 12, 1, and 2 is the capstone to chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, these witnesses that testify to the life of faith... Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, all right? Now, here's the amazing thing, is that sometimes those examples of faith are examples of obedience that comes from faith. Think, for instance, uh, of Moses or Abraham. Sometimes they are examples of the future hope that a person who has faith has. So Abraham is actually looking to a city whose builder and maker is God. He does that by faith. Sometimes it was just perseverance that is being modeled by faith. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallibly, uses Old Testament examples to point us to the life of faith. And all, in a sense, all of the implications, ramifications 
of the life of faith. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 5. Now, before I read the passage, this is, this is going to be about Elijah, all right? Does Elijah point us to Christ? I have three yeses. Any, four, four. Can I get five? Okay, can, can, I get, can I get some unanimity here? Does Elijah point us to Christ? The answer is yes. In fact, when Jesus at Caesarea Philippi says, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. In other words, there are incredible parallels between Elijah's ministry and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Elijah as as, in a sense, the prophet of the Old Testament, points us in his office to Christ, who is the ultimate prophet of God because he's the word of God, all right? So, Elijah points us to Christ. Look at what James does. James obviously missed the homiletics course at Westminster Seminary. Says... Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. Here's the statement. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Got it? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, let me just ask you, so here's Elijah who does most definitely point us to Christ, but James doesn't use him as a model that points us to Christ. James uses him as a model for what? For prayer, right? And in fact, what does James appeal on the basis of Elijah that connects with us? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You see what James is actually doing? James is not appealing to Elijah in his office as prophet who points us to Christ. James is pointing us to Elijah as a believer who prayed. Now, you want to know something really interesting. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, there is not a single text in 1 Kings 18 that actually says that Elijah prayed for rain. In verses 40 to 42, he puts his head between his knees. And that's all we have. James is, now I think Elijah's praying. But the text never even says he prayed for rain. Puts his head between his knees and then he tells then he tells Ahab, you better get going because there's going to be a rainstorm. And what's interesting about this is that James uses Elijah as a model 
of the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishing much, and he does it on a text that doesn't even say explicitly that Elijah prayed. All that to say that we can go to the Bible and we can relate to the characters of the Bible. One of the, one of the amazing things is as we go to these people in the Bible, these characters, they do, in fact, often, either positively or negatively, point us in the direction of Christ. But here, here's the amazing thing. So think of David, for instance. Is David a type of Christ? Can we get... Yes, yes, please say yes. Yes, David is a type of Christ. David points us to Christ. How does David point us to Christ? As the king of Israel. In his office, David points us to Christ. Okay? He rules in righteousness. Right? I mean, there are a number of things David points us. But when you read the Psalms, can you relate with David, the ordinary sinner? Can you relate with David as the guy who struggles? Okay. Can you relate with David's prayers of joy and, and, and agony? The answer is yes. And, and, and here's, here's one of the things is that sometimes, sometimes we, we can overreact to things. And, and so... I don't want to hear a sermon on 1 Samuel 17 uh, and, and David and Goliath and, and have as the, the, the message, um, use, learn to use a slingshot like David. That's not the point. In fact, the point is not even ultimately be brave like David. The point ultimately is that God is the one who gives the victory and he'll give the ultimate victory through his greater son, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And so 1 Samuel 17 points us magnificently to Jesus through David by his victory. It's not just uh, be a good marksman with a sling. It's not just be really brave when you're facing, uh, uh, you know, Philistine giants. There's a bigger message, a more important message. But is there not something to take away and learn from David's faithfulness and David's zeal for the name of the Lord and David's courage that came from his faith? It's not an either or. It's both and. And so the Bible comes to us And it points us to Christ, but it also reveals our own nature. And so um, one pastor says, uh, certainly Christ is the apex of all Scripture, but God ordained and created real redeemed men to whom we can relate, not shadows or play actors. God created fallible, sinful men who, just like us, have been redeemed from particular sins. Therefore, historical details, situations, and the very people to whom we are introduced are very important. It's imperative that we don't diminish the significance of humans in history. Okay. Well, what about 
What about wisdom? Okay. Now, if I'm lopsided on the Christ-centered, redemptive, historical approach and I come to wisdom, you know what I'm going to say? 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is my wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Christ is wisdom personified. And so I'm going to try to figure out how to relate all of the wisdom themes back to Jesus. And what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible itself wouldn't compel us to do that. Think for a moment um, about the text that David uh, Wetmore has read for us in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 6, all right? By the way, there's a similar warning in Proverbs 7. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 gives a father's warning to his son to stay away from the foreign woman. That doesn't mean... Syrian refugee or a French person, all right? Foreign means the strange woman, and that doesn't mean, okay, weird, bizarre, odd. It means the person that does not rightfully belong to you. Now, when you think about those three passages, it's a warning against sexual immorality, And you know what's interesting about each of the warnings? To avoid sexual immorality, to um, to, um, enjoy the wife of your youth, to be exhilarated in her love, not to be... Not to be, as it were, spreading your, um, your sexual strength abroad where it does not belong, but to be focused on one woman who is lawfully yours before the Lord. The exhortations to avoid immorality are all rooted in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 in what? In the negative consequences that come about as the result of such behavior. Okay? Now, this is, this is important because there are some that, that think that the, that the only biblical motivation to holiness has to be explicitly rooted somehow in the gospel. And yet, in the wisdom of the Proverbs, the exhortation to avoid sexual immorality is rooted in the unbelievably terrible consequences that happen to those that don't give heed to this advice. And so, do we want our young people to be pure because of a love for God and a sense of that they don't belong to themselves, they belong to the Lord, they've been bought with the price, or to glorify God in their bodies? And the answer is yes, absolutely. That's, we want them rooted in, in that kind of wonderful gospel indicative so that they in turn yield their bodies as a living sacrifice. But is it also legitimate to preach from the Bible all of the incredible bad consequences of not following God's ways. You better believe it. You better believe it. Think of other passages in the Proverbs where it talks to us about how to use our money. What's, what's one of the motivations of... of um, of actually being diligent and working hard in the Proverbs so that you won't be poor. 
right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come on you like an armed bandit. Okay? In other words, there's a part of God's revealed wisdom that says, hey, work hard, not only because you should glorify God in all that you do, Colossians 3.23, but also because you don't want to be poor. So when Ashley was about six years old, um, Ariel's trying to homeschool her, and she, she won't get up in the morning. And Ariel wants to start school, and Ashley just won't get out of bed. And so I finally, after a few days of this, sat down with her, and I took that little book that some of you have, Signposts from Proverbs. I went to the chapter on laziness, and I read to her that as, as, as a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns on his bed. And I read to her Proverbs 6, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. I read to her about those who love sleep and how they come to ruin. And I said, do you remember that time we were in Sacramento and you saw that lady pushing that cart? She said, yes. I said, do you remember what I, you asked what she was and I told you and Remember what daddy said? Yes, daddy, she was, she's a bag lady. Yeah. You know what the wisdom of God says? If you don't get out of bed and are diligent in school, that could be you one day. Do you want that to be you? No, daddy, not at all. And guess what? She got up. Okay. Now, is that a biblical motivation? You better believe it's a biblical motivation. All right? Is it the highest, most noble motivation? No! I would have rather said, of course, mommy, I'll get out of bed. The fifth commandment requires of me to honor my mother and father, that my days may be long in the land which the Lord your God has given me. And so, of course, I want to obey you because I want to be pleasing to God because he's done so much for me. And, and of course, we want that to be the motivation. But you know what? Sometimes you just need to say, do you really want to be a bag lady? We also not only have practical wisdom, we also just have practical righteousness. So Paul says, classic text, right? Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. What, what scripture is Paul talking about? Okay, yeah, very good. All right. <laughs> okay, so now that that's out of the way, when Paul says all scripture, what scripture is Paul thinking about? The Old Testament. Are you tracking with me now? The Old Testament. All Scripture, i.e. the Old Testament, because that's the Scripture Paul had, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, rebuke, and instruction in righteousness. Paul actually thought that the Old Testament could be used for teaching, that is doctrine, to correct me, 
to rebuke me and to teach me how to live the way God wants me to live. And in fact, Paul was convinced so that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. And so, I would just say that whatever the the theme, wherever we are, um, we want to see Christ. But don't be so locked in into what it means to see Christ that you miss using the Bible in the way that the Bible uses itself. All right? So, I have a quote here from John Frame in really what's an excellent, excellent essay. He says, should every sermon have redemptive history as its principal subject? I would say no. There's nothing in the Bible itself that requires us to restrict preaching in this way. And there are many ethical passages in Scripture which do not explicitly focus on the eschatological ethical tension, such as Proverbs and some of the ethical passages of the New Testament. We should not demand that a preacher emphasizes something that's not emphasized in his text. If one argues that these texts must be seen in the light of the broader biblical principles of redemptive history, again, I would reply that the reverse is also true. Surely we cannot maintain that every relevant theological context be brought into the exposition of every text. I believe that if a preacher emphasizes grace in his overall ministry, including the proper relationship between grace and works, it is not wrong for him to occasionally preach on a proverb, a law, or a norm without devoting his central attention to the eschatological ethical tension. So, my grand conclusion is that there is no conflict in the Bible between preaching Christ and preaching ethics or preaching applied theology and I point you to the 1 Corinthians 10 passage and the 2 Timothy 3 and 4 passage. It's interesting, in fact, um, we didn't bring this up earlier, but that 2 Timothy passage, how does that section begin? Paul identifies the scriptures, the sacred writings, okay, which again is the reference to the Old Testament, sacred writings which give you the wisdom which leads to what? salvation in Christ Jesus. So Paul looks at the Old Testament and he says, in the Old Testament, that leads you to the wisdom that brings you to Christ, okay? which is another way of what he says in Galatians 3.24, that the law is a pedagogue, is a, uh, is a corrections officer to lead you to faith in Christ. Okay? And so Paul very clearly, Christ-centered perspective, Old Testament scriptures have the wisdom that leads you to salvation in Christ. And then he says, all scriptures God breathed. Then after that, in chapter 4, he exhorts Timothy, preach the word. What word? The God-breathed word, the word that actually leads to salvation in Christ. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, instruct with all Patience. 
And so the very word that's designed to lead you to salvation in Christ is also the very same word that's used for correction and instruction in righteousness. It's the very same word that's to be brought forth with reproof and correction and patient instruction. So I would say that preaching Christ in the power of the Spirit is in fact teaching the whole counsel of God. And it is teaching believers the great redemptive themes of sin and grace, promise, fulfillment, indicative, imperative, promise and command, wisdom and eschatology. It's also teaching the Christ-centered scriptures in a way that the gospel is clear, that all of life is brought under Christ's lordship. It's preaching for both what we believe and how we live. And we preach Christ best when we don't separate what God has joined together. And so preaching Christ in the power of the Spirit is not just teaching the Bible, but it's also an event, a redemptive event, in which the old, old story is brought to bear on my life and yours. It actually is an encounter with the God of redemptive history as he intersects with your history and your life. That's preaching Christ in the power of the Spirit. All right, right, well, that's all I have. Next week, we'll pick up with chapter 2, verse 6 from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the great subject of your word, your own Son, And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we would see Christ more in the Scriptures. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't just read it like a list of things that we're supposed to do, but help us to see Christ. And we pray, Lord, even as you did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that you'd open our eyes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.